Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. This is Vikram from Quantlayer. Thanks for listening to our podcast. On this episode, I speak to Zaki Munyan from Tinderman. We get deep into the weeds of interoperability, his notions of interop between fast chains and fast and slow chains. We discuss the IBC protocol, which is a spec for adapters between different chains. We also talk about the complexities when dealing with cross-chain communications. Moreover, we examine design and development principles when building products in the space and the differences versus building traditional software product. Zaki goes over some exciting projects that are being built on Cosmos as well. Enjoy. Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. Our guest today is Zaki Munyan, head of research at Tindermint. Thanks for joining us today, Zaki. My pleasure. So can we get a little about your background and kind of what interested you about the space that got you involved? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been involved in the space since sort of late 2013. Started getting to know people, started getting interested in cryptography and cryptocurrencies and all of this stuff. So the sort of efficient version of this story is before all of this, I was working in sort of medical and scientific instrument systems. I was just like, you know, I was a programmer and a product manager on those sorts of things. I definitely gotten a little bored and frustrated with the biotechnology space. I won't go into too much detail about that, but like I'm sort of one of the things that had been really sort of bothering me is You know, I'd been reading on the internet. I'm mostly a self-taught programmer and a self-taught software developer and a self-taught cryptographer. I just tend to teach myself lots of things. Mm -hmm. And I kept reading about, you know, you read all these like fascinating articles on the internet online and on Hacker News about, you know, security and memory safety and, and, you know, how Chrome was like trying to make the web more secure and all this stuff. I kind of looked at my own code and I'm like, you know, this is shitty, not memory safe uh, code that, you know, I've been pumping out for the last five, six years. And I've been like, surely at that point, I was like, A, maybe these vulnerabilities don't get exploited that often. B, you know, the people who are building the really important stuff are perhaps writing better code than I am. And I had this realization sort of that sort of happened from over like a two-year period from 2010 to 2012, where I just became more and more concerned. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that that the same crappy, unsafe, insecure code that I'm putting out is actually like what runs everything. (laughs) Right. And this is going to be the whole world. Like, and then the second thing I started to realize is, is it's not that this stuff isn't being exploited. It is being exploited. It's just everyone is kind of sort of collectively playing this game where they all pretend it's not as bad as it is. You know, it's the the classic, you know, the dog with the room on fire with the this is fine mug. Yep, yep. This was the situation. So that became like increasingly clear to me. After the Snowden revelations back in 2013, I started a civil liberties organization called Restore the Fourth with some of my friends or like actually with a bunch of strangers on the internet. 
who then became my friends. And that is kind of how I got a lot of those people were into cryptocurrencies. So I got much more interested in becoming like a more of a security and cryptography oriented like developer and researcher. In 2014, I started an enterprise focused blockchain startup called SkewChain. In 2017, I sort of pivoted all of my attention to public blockchains. Some of the people who I founded that uh, civil liberties organization with back in 2013 are the people who actually introduced me to Jay Kwan back in 2013. And so we'd been friends for a really long time. And, you know, I had been in 2015 and 2016, my contributions to public blockchains were just like a hobbyist thing I was doing. You know, I would help out with Definity and Ethereum and uh, Zcash and Bitcoin and various things. I was super interested in what Jay was doing with Tendermint and sort of, so, you know, I helped him get Cosmos off the ground in 2016. And then, so 2017 was basically spent like running around trying to deal with all of these projects that my friends had been working on, like Tezos and Cosmos, who suddenly raised like unfathomably large amounts of money and were just like struggling under the weight of all of this. And then 2018 was like basically me figuring out how do you launch something like Tendermint? Like, how do you actually do that? And so, you know, built our whole like release process, testnet process, built our validator community, set up our whole like launch milestone process and like successfully launched the whole thing. And so now, you know, I wear a lot of different hats inside of the organization. Um, head of research is one of them. And I'm sort of focused on on sort of, you know, getting IBC done. Um, and then, you know, uh, sort of just in general, kind of the future of the whole blockchain space. Yep. So that was interesting. Uh, we've heard this idea that current day, especially this year, um, developers aren't as interested in private chains as they are in public chains, mainly due to what private blockchains offer, which are these kind of like small efficiency improvements over system on systems versus what public blockchains are capable of. What kind of drove your pivot from the private to public angle? Okay, so one is you're you're absolutely right that like what private blockchains offer is small efficiency improvements. But it's sort of interesting like why that is, because if you look at any individual business process, public blockchains also only offer small incremental efficiency improvements. Mm, okay. But what I what, what I would say is what or what I realized in 2017 is before I was like, as I said, like a life science instrumentation systems developer, I didn't know how like money moving systems worked. Like, but like over the course of, of working on SKU chain, I had to learn a lot about like how does money actually move around the economy? Like how do financial back office processes actually work? Because those were the markets that we were trying to disrupt. And I had this realization in 2017 that like what was really different about public blockchains versus private blockchains is public blockchains allow for a level of integration between different components of a system that you will never, ever be allowed to have in the public space. You will never see, I think, in sort of the private blockchain or just like even the private fintech system, like ever an integration of a securities issuance system, a system of record, money moving system, all into like an underwriting system into one unified, consistent atomic system. 
Right. And when you talk about like, so like an incrementally more efficient issuant unsystem, underwriting system, money moving system, together unified into one thing is actually, I believe, going to be like a substantial phase change in the way financial systems are architected and being able to make building those unified systems accessible to software engineers globally is a huge step towards sort of unwinding or to is a huge step toward improving accessibility of all of this technology because another big problem with the system is just the number of gatekeepers that exist around any sort of financial or money moving system yep and all of these things are really just computers yep I'm glad you brought that up because when we talk about interoperability, what is it that we're talking about from the kind of viewpoint of Cosmos? Okay, so I've been trying, I've been, I'm going to test out in public probably like a a new way of explaining this that I haven't tried before for the, for for your podcast. So this is my first shot with this. All right, let's do it. First, I want to talk about the, I basically view that the, the world that we're living in in 2019 consists of kind of like two basic classes of blockchains. One class of blockchain is like what I call the slow blockchains. Bitcoin and Ethereum in its current form are what I would like, what I think of as the slow blockchains. Mm -hmm. And the slow blockchains have a lot of value inside of them. A, they're extremely reliable pieces of software. You know, Bitcoin and to a lesser extent, Ethereum are mature systems. There's a lot of market adoption. There's a lot of liquidity. There's a lot of just like consumer knowledge about those systems, but they're also not going to be the systems that this world of unified, integrated, available finance can be built on, in my opinion. And then you have this new world of fast blockchains. So anything built on Cosmos, on Tendermint or the Cosmos SDK, but also Ethereum 2.0, Polkadot, uh, near protocol, Solana, it goes on and on and on. Okay, so these are the fast blockchains. So now what we have is a world. So we have these two worlds. So what is Cosmos trying to do from an interoperability point of view? We have a, a protocol that we've been developing called IBC, Interblockchain Communication, that really builds on work from the Agoric people who started working on this back in like the 1990s and were the like inspiration behind Cosmos and we get to work with them now. We have this IBC protocol where this final spec is about to be released in about a couple of weeks or like actually a couple of days. Uh, We're looking at like Monday, Tuesday next week. And this is basically a set of a protocol or like a mechanism by which fast blockchains can communicate with each other, exchange assets to each other. And so it's basically the idea of taking the entire fast blockchain world and knitting all of those pieces together. Okay, so then there's the the second piece, which is, or like, so I'm going to just say that in my mind, interoperability between slow blockchains is medium of interest. It's certainly something that like, there's some cool stuff to work on. It's not super clear to me how relevant slow blockchain to slow blockchain interoperability is in the long term. And then there is slow blockchain to fast blockchain interoperability. And this is what I think the work that Keep has been doing on TBTC, 
that a lot of the layer two interoperability solutions like Interledger are all bringing to the table is like a lot of interesting techniques that will be applied in the slow blockchain to fast blockchain interoperability world. So our goal in Cosmos is to do two things. One is really make this fast blockchain world transition happen a lot faster through interoperability. And then simultaneously start working on and making progress on the slow blockchain to fast blockchain interoperability world. And those are the two places in which we're going to play. Got it. I think that makes a ton of sense. A question I have around that, I guess, is, I'm sorry, but this is going to be a pretty broad question. So happy to like, if there's an area you want to focus on, that's that's great. What are the primary issues when, in terms of having chains talk to one another? Like you need some interoperability layer, but like, what are some of the complexities there? Okay, so let's let's talk about the two pieces of this. And so let's talk about first the fast blockchain to fast blockchain case. So what the core sort of idea in Cosmos is, right now when you want to interoperate two blockchains, so all blockchains are publicly readable databases, okay, Mm -hmm. where you can cryptographically prove presence or absence of data in that database. So all blockchains, with some caveats at some level, inherently interoperable, like all blockchains Like the base case is all blockchains are interoperable. So like, why is blockchain interoperable a thing if all blockchains are by definition interoperable? So the problem is, is how complex is your adapter between the two blockchains? Mm -hmm. So right now, A, there's not a lot of fast blockchains out there, but there's no standard way of thinking about the adapters between these blockchains. They don't have standard pieces, standard components. So it's like, Imagine if you had two computers, you have an electrical connection between that you're like, I can send current between this computer and that computer. Okay, great, guys. Like, (laughs) this doesn't actually help us build, like, we can't just, like, go from there to the internet. So what IBC is an attempt to do is standardize the components of how do pieces of software in this fast blockchain world understand each other's consensus mechanisms and proof generation mechanisms? How do you have sort of standard formats for consensus proofs and Merkle proofs or generalized accumulator proofs of, you know, the presence or absence of data in the system? And like really the most important and the most sort of exciting piece about IBC was, and this is the, these are the ideas that really come from the Agoric people, is you can standardize how two software systems are introduced to each other. So how do they inform each other about like what they do, what capabilities they are, what, like, can you send me tokens? Can you send me NFTs? Can you send me generalized e-rights? Can I send them back to you? Like this ability of, by which two pieces of software can be introduced to each other means that instead of writing thousands of lines of adapter code every single time we want this blockchain to talk to another blockchain, we get each blockchain to implement IBC once, 
and maybe have to extend it a little bit when you add new like support for new consensus protocols, et cetera. But like the basic structure remains the same. And then any other blockchain that implements IBC, you can immediately be like, any user can just be like, okay, near protocol blockchain, I want to talk to this Cosmos protocol, Cosmos SDK blockchain. They both speak IBC, it's connected, and like everybody can just run with it. You know, there could be like one IBC smart contract essentially on Ethereum 2.0 and every other smart contract or maybe one IBC contract per shard on Ethereum 2.0 and every other blockchain that speaks IBC can immediately start talking to that shard. Mm-hmm. So that's the challenge of fast blockchain to fast blockchain interoperability. Yep. If you want, I can do slow blockchain to fast blockchain. Well, uh, just a general question here in terms of Concerned of uh, trade-offs. So, you know, right now there's like some cross-chain communication methods like stateless SPVs. There's like relays, atomic swaps, and so forth. The big problem with relays is no one really uses them. They're expensive to maintain and stuff like that. What uh, what are some of the trade-offs here that are pretty clear? So first thing I would say is the relays and a lot of our assumptions around this come from trying to make slow blockchains talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So like, for instance, cross-chain atomic swaps on layer one are a terrible user experience when both sides of the system are slow blockchains. Um, on If both sides of the systems are fast blockchains, it's not really clear that the user experience is that bad. If you get a confirmation, if you want to do a cross-chain atomic swap and you each blockchain produces a block once a second, like, okay, it took me three seconds to do my cross-chain atomic swap, great. Um, <laughs> Like, this is not a bad thing. This is not a bad user experience. So a lot of what we've been trying to do with cross-blockchain interaction has been uh, constrained by this desire to make two slow blockchains interact with each other. So I do think that there's sort of a re-examination of like what works and what doesn't work in the world of fast blockchains. It is interesting to me, like, the extent to which we have had artifacts of technology in this space, POA networks, sort of like repurposed parity testnet software and their relayers have existed for a long time. Um, we, we see a lot of people trying to interop. Like, there's a lot of projects that are interoperability between Ethereum and some fast blockchain that are either launched or launching. And so we're gonna, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. One thing that I think I think is really sort of exciting about the Cosmos ecosystem is, A, we're starting from this point of fast blockchains to fast blockchains. And we're starting with an ecosystem which already has like a strong emphasis on the idea that your assets are going to be moving from blockchain to blockchain. And I'm hoping that at collectively as an ecosystem, we're able to overcome a lot of the usability challenges of all of this like more quickly than... I think the slow blockchain to fast blockchain Ethereum centric approach, which is seems like has, I'm still like, it's in theory, it sounds so appealing in theory, but I'm not really convinced that it works super well. I also am increasingly of the opinion that probably the slow blockchain that you want to focus on is Bitcoin and not Ethereum. Yep. Especially with Ethereum potentially going to 2.0 at some point. And like Ethereum will eventually be a fast blockchain. Right. And then become incredibly interesting. But they they actually face the same problem, which is they have a fast blockchain and a slow blockchain, and they actually have to connect them to make the transition work. 
Gotcha. As far as the usability challenges you just mentioned, which ones do you think are kind of low-hanging fruit that you think we'll take care of pretty quickly? So one of the words that you sort of, you put in this is the word relayer. And I'd say relayers represent, like, we've been trying to figure out in the design of IBC what exactly relayers are and what role they will serve in the ecosystem. Like, you see a lot, you know, a lot of the sort of, again, like, in the Ethereum slow blockchain to fast blockchain world, you see a lot of things where, like, the validator nodes on the blockchain run the relayer between, like, Ethereum and your sidechain. So, like... Scale works like this. And like your economic incentivization is like you're trying to you're trying to get assets onto your blockchain so you can. So one of the things that we think in Cosmos right now is we think that their relayer role, which is less trusted in IBC than it is in like Ethereum to you know your other network, um, like Loom or something like that. We think that relayer role is going to may end up just being fulfilled by your wallet provider or like someone involved in like presenting the rest of the user experience to the user. Mm -hmm. And as a result is going to be, should be a much better, I'm hoping going to be a much better and less confusing user experience. And like as a system is going to require less solving a distributed systems problem. It's really like funny. Like I was like, you know, I, I've been talking to the team about this a lot. You know, it's like we have these diagrams of IBC, and like the diagram for IBC has a place. It says relayer, okay. and, <laughs> and I've known from like for the last three years. I'm like relayers are going to be a nightmare from an engineering point of view, from a usability point of view. Like, how do you resolve all these race conditions between all the different parties? Like, my sense of the world is none of the relayers that we really see really work that well, and they're all like five thousand lines of code. And so I was just talking to the IBC team and I'm like, can we just like not write a relayer? Can we like not do one? And like, will the whole thing work if like we just assume at least at the beginning and like maybe this has to change at somebody in the future, but we'll hopefully like learn more that like whoever runs your wallet or is just going to do the relaying for you. Mm-hmm. And we were like, yeah, we think that'll work. And I'm like, this is great. Let's take the relayer out of the software development plan. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> We'll come back to it when we kind of like understand the requirements better. Right. Well, that's really interesting from like a design principles perspective and setting out. What were the kind of main design principles you set out on when designing the Cosmos network? Our biggest and most important design principle was, so there's sort of a pivot that occurs. Like we spend all of 2018 sort of just trying to like show that we could successfully launch a truly decentralized proof of stake BFT network and that the thing wouldn't just like collapse in the first day. Yep. And like, so that was like a big part of it. So in the white paper back in 2016, I was like, I'm sure there's an application agnostic version of IBC, but I can't figure out how to make one right now. So let's just like, put in the white paper a very application-specific version of IBC. We get to starting this, like, the real push to, like, get IBC out the door, and everybody involved in the project is like, screw doing this application-specific token transfer version. We're going to do the real, like, the application-agnostic version out of the box. So great. So our goals then became, this should be general-purpose, application-agnostic, permissionless system where 
one of the worst things about what we've delivered so far with Cosmos, and like one of the most annoying limitations about what we've delivered so far with Cosmos, is if you're just a software developer and you want to write a new Cosmos SDK module, and then you want people to like run and interact with it, your only options right now are either to like go to Cosmos Hub governance and be like, would you like to do an upgrade that adds my software module? Or go to one of the other Cosmos network blockchains or like launch your own thing, have to find a validator network, et cetera. All of this is kind of a nightmare. I believe that IBC is mostly going to is going to be a huge mechanism for changing that and is going to allow sort of permissionless innovation inside of the Cosmos ecosystem. Because if you launch a new Cosmos chain that is connected to the hub over IBC and has some new features on it, and maybe doesn't even doesn't even necessarily need to be connected to the hub, but like you launch a new Cosmos SDK chain as and like people want to talk to you. All they have to do is connect their IBC channels to your node or to your blockchain. You can be running all of your blockchain nodes on like an AWS account and advertise a small public API. It could handle trivial amounts of volume and you can set all this stuff up for and be paying, you know, a couple like a hundred dollars a month to run, you know, in terms of computer infrastructure. Now, let's say your module is actually like great and successful and people are really excited about it and like people want to add this to like a money-moving infrastructure that launch, handles large amounts of money, then yes, you will need to grow and get a validator set that like people will take seriously. You'll have to figure out some sort of crypto-economic design that like justifies this thing's existence, either through some sort of cross-chain staking thing that we make possible through the Cosmos Hub or launching your own token. All of that will, st- will eventually have to be done. But like right now, what's worse about Cosmos is that you have to do all those things first. And the sort of core design principle of IBC is we're trying to build a system that like moves those things from the beginning, like moves finding a validator set, like figuring out your token economics, all of that stuff from the beginning of the process to the end of the process. Yep. So I guess let's talk about some of the innovation that you're seeing in the ecosystem. What are some kind of interesting projects you see people building on Cosmos right now? So there's like 90 something projects 90, 100-ish projects building on top of Tendermint, Cosmos, uh, Cosmos SDK, all of this stuff. So like, what am I excited about? It's a complicated question because what all of this stuff is, is still an evolving ecosystem. I'm pretty excited. So, and like, what seems like it's, it's got some momentum behind it or like, is like starting to like figure out something. Like I'm obviously really excited about just taking the Binance Dex and that ecosystem that's evolving around it and connecting it to Cosmos Hub and like making it all into one big unified ecosystem. Yep. I am really excited about I think like one of the things that's a little bit underrecognized is the extent to which the Terra blockchain uh, which is built on top of the Cosmos SDK in South Korea, is a little bit like a South Korean Libra, except it's live and people are using it. And it's actually starting to become a more, like there's a lot more interesting stuff there. Uh, I, I missed that. What is the name of it? Terra, T-E-R-R-A. Okay, I will check that out. So it's a stable coin built on top of Cosmos. 
There are a lot of experiments with like DeFi things on Cosmos. There's like a Uniswap thing that like is being built around the Binance chain that like the Binance people are building as a, a zone and going to connect to the Binance chain. Initially, probably with like a sort of lame primitive version of IBC and then eventually with the full version of IBC. So all of that stuff is really exciting to me. I'm excited about people in our network who are just doing like interesting stuff with token distribution, et cetera. So there's a incentivized mesh nets company called Althea mm-hmm. that is doing the first reg CF token airdrop to their network and like standing up a cosmos zone. I'm excited that like True Story has built like this sort of rich social networking application on top of the Cosmos SDK. I'm super excited about so you know, as I was saying, like on one hand for the Cosmos Hub, the permissionless extension mechanism that we initially sort of expect is IBC, but like the Agoric people are building on top of a a smart contracts module using JavaScript on top of the Cosmos SDK. So I'm super excited about that being live. There's a lot going on in in the wider world of Cosmos. It's sort of exciting to see all of these new projects also just like sort of cop, you know, mimicking or being inspired by our launch process and launching their own test nets for unrelated networks. But like, I just kind of view any fast new next gen blockchain that is coming up as just like another part of Cosmos. Yeah, that's awesome. So one of the reasons I ask about that is, you know, a lot of our listeners are developers who are really excited to get their hands into blockchain. If if they wanted to develop uh, with the Cosmos SDK, what are the kinds of applications you you could recommend that would be like a good fit for kind of a toy app to get their hands kind of wet and figure out the system before they move on to kind of more complex applications? So we have this Cosmos SDK name service tutorial that like is uh, it's on our github.com slash cosmos, I think slash cosmos tutorial or something like that. Uh, but it's pretty easy to find. That's like a kind of a good way of getting started and, and getting introduced to how to develop on top of the Cosmos SDK. Mm-hmm. There's an increasing number of applications where their code is open source, like Terra is a good example. And hopefully we're going to see more of that. So that's all really exciting. It's actually funny. It's like talked about all this stuff and I just like think of other things that are like interesting and exciting and moving. We have the folks at Chainsafe who've taken over development. So we have Agoric building their smart contract module on top of the Cosmos SDK. We have the folks at Chainsafe who've picked up the development of what we call Ethermint, the EVM module inside of the Cosmos SDK. And that we're expecting that to be like a a sort of transition path for developers who already met, maybe already have a lot of like solidity code that they don't want to drop immediately. And there's another project called Microtech, which is kind of a like there's Microtech and Vega protocol, which are both futures markets built on top of Cosmos. Yeah, it's just like it's so much stuff. Yeah. <laughs> One quick question. So you mentioned validators before, just so we don't kind of gloss over the topic, but can we talk a little bit about the consensus and incentive system here? You know, there's trade-offs across the board with different mechanisms, you know, proof of work has concerns that it's slow, harmful to the environment, proof of stake, depending on the chain has concerns around centralization. I'd love to understand like who gets to be a validator and what are the economic uh, incentives these validators have? Sure. So like one of the big things that we wanted to have for Cosmos is we wanted to have economic incentives 
and decentralized validator selection turned on at the like the launch of the hub. And so the hub launch was like essentially the first decentralized proof of stake launch ever. Mm-hmm. Where we didn't start out with like one node and then like people joined after that, you know, or like, you know, three nodes or something like that. 67 nodes took part in the Cosmos hub launch. They got their stake either by participating in the Cosmos uh, fundraiser or they got stake from participating in Game of Stakes or they were employees of Tendermint or somehow, or like a contractor who worked for the ICF. These were all ways of getting stake in that initial network. Yep. And so all of those people kind of, those are the people who selected the initial set of nodes. And then as the system has gone live and those people voted to enable token transfers and we upgraded the network for the first time, then we've had you know people buying atoms on various cryptocurrency exchanges and staking them. We're up to about 73% of the total atom supply being staked, mm-hmm. which is kind of insane. It just boggles my mind that we got there so quickly. And the so like the current mechanism that by which validators have gotten paid was intended as a bootstrapping mechanism. And it was intended as a mechanism that basically was like transfer acts as a wealth transfer between people who are speculating on the token on exchanges and people who are staking the token. So if you hold atoms and they're unstaked, the inflation that is happening, which is like 7.55% or something like that, and drifting right now towards 7% and will be further adjustable through governance, is essentially causing the new tokens to go to the people who are staking. And it's a net wealth transfer from the speculators to the stakers. And an unstaked atom doesn't get to participate in governance. You don't get to pick validators. You don't do any of that. But, you know, it's fungible and you can trade it. And it's actually, I mean... The economics of this system are are still something that we're really like trying. I'd say the market is still trying to figure out, and like everybody involved in the mm-hmm. project is actually trying to figure out, which is cool because it means you built a real thing. Uh, because there are actually economics to figure out. So, like you know, there was a, a good Twitter thread I saw from you know one of our community members today about like he was like sort of thinking about how like staked and unstaked atoms are actually like two different assets that you can convert. It's actually each atom staked to a different validator is in many senses, a different asset, like an atom stake to my validator, occlusion or Certus One. Those are actually two f- different assets because they have different slashing mm-hmm. risks. And in the future, they'll have different income streams. And an unstaked atom, which is basically a fungible asset that you can use to be turned into a stake to occlusion asset or a stake to Certus One yeah. asset. And because no one else is really running a system like this, where like you know, there's this 21 day unbonding period, there's slashing risks, and eventually going to be alternate differential income streams with different validators. Like, I would say in general, like how this whole thing works is still being figured out. And the other thing is, you know, you were talking about the centralization concerns. There's actually a lot of levers that we have left that we haven't pulled yet in terms of incentivizing decentralization. But like one of my big concerns with pulling those levers is the immaturity of the validator space. It's a pretty noisy sector right now. It's clearly just emerging validator. It's like everybody's trying to figure out what your business model is. None of these chains really have enough activity and throughput going through them that running a validator is a sensible standalone business. It seems to be part of something other. It's, it seems to only make sense as part of another business, whether it's software development or custody or consulting or something. So everyone's still trying to figure out what that is. 
And then you have 20 or 30 different projects that all need validators launching right now. And you basically see exactly the same people that I got to know when I was putting together the Cosmos Hub validator community. You see exactly the same people in just like every other validator discord. Got it. What do you think, not on the lever side, but uh, what do you think it'll take to get like new people into the ecosystem? A lot of projects who are, you know, inspired by like Cosmos's prior work in this space come to me and other people in the Cosmos team for advice on, on sort of what to do or like how to build their validator communities. And my advice is pretty consistently like you do, you should be spending energy trying to go out and like create some validators that are more affiliated and attuned to your community and your project. Because like right now, I think we're seeing a world where essentially every blockchain gets validated by like the same set of validators. Yeah. And that's actually probably good from a security point of view, because like these validators, even though they may not have a lot of stake in your blockchain, they probably have stakes somewhere. And in general, their their business is, is sort of built on, on reliability and high quality of service. And so it, it's, it's good from a security and reliability point of view, certainly, to have this small set of validators that are sort of everywhere for the whole ecosystem. But it's bad from a decentralization point of view, and it's bad from having like a community with a distinct flavor who really cares about your thing. Yep. And so what I spend a lot of time telling projects that are launching, I'm like, yeah, okay, like go spend the time talking to like the Cosmos Hub validator set is essentially a list of who you want to talk to if you need validators. So you go talk to a bunch of those, great. Now I'm like, you got to have a strategy for finding some people who are like your people and not the same people as everybody else's people. And I'm hoping that will be a mechanism of growing the validator ecosystem. But I like, I also think that it's a big challenge, you know, I was able to convince all of these people on the internet to like come along on this journey of building validators for me. But it's like still every one of them is an, every validator is basically an independent entrepreneurial unit that is out there trying to figure out like, how do we make this a viable, sustainable business? Yep. I guess some teams have taken the path of kind of handing out incentives to bring on new validators, meaning like giving out tokens to bring new validators on. That to me, I think, and correct me if you disagree or I'm, I'm incorrect, that that's not the best route that one would want to take, right? So Cosmos's Game of Stakes program was immensely successful. And what Game of Stakes was, so basically we ran all of these test nets for almost a year and we kind of got all of this, uh, we had this, built this whole community and there were never any real explicit financial incentives in the early Cosmos testament. So it was just like organically finding people who were excited about the validator business who thought there were opportunities here and wanted to make a go at it. Mm-hmm. But one of the other things that we became, because we were going to do a decentralized proof of stake network launch, we knew that the network was going to launch without much, if any, security. So we made this decision that we were going to launch without token transfers being enabled. We were going to explicitly disable token transfers, let the community decide when the network had achieved enough stability to safely enable token transfers. Gotcha. That's really interesting. But then we realized we had a problem, which was all of these people who had participated in our testnet program for a year 
and like wanted validators. And we realized that being a validator was going to be kind of sticky to begin with. We're going to like expel them all from our community for an unknown amount of time until the community decides to enable token transfers. And this seems like a terrible idea. And so Game of Stakes was really a solution to that problem. Now, what I would say is whenever anyone asks me about Game of Stakes, I'm like, our biggest mistake, my biggest mistake is I overloaded too many things into it. Okay. And so it was solving this problem, it was testing the software, it was testing economic incentives, it became like signal to the world about like what validators were good and what validators were not good, like all of this stuff. Too much overloading of it. So now when you see where the projects are right now, one is they're all vying for attention from the same group of people who are trying to make this validator set, validator business like small, right? It's like the same 200 companies in every validator check, like system. So, and all of these companies are now kind of out of this, like, oh, like, is this going to work? I'm willing to like, kind of like do all this stuff for free phase. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of like, okay, show me some money. Right. Okay. Um, which is a pretty dangerous place to be. And I think in a lot of ways, but it's also just like reality at this point with my validator. It's like, it's this continuous question about where should we put our attention? What problems should we do? And like, we have to make dollars and cents decisions about like, is this project, like, do we think what we're going to potentially make from this project is worth our time? Do I think what we might learn about, you know, the software that they're building on, could we reuse it for other things? All of this stuff is, is, is still super uncertain. And like, we need, need to spend a lot of time figuring it out. And so you have these like very dollars and cents driven concerns. And then you have these questions about, you know, like securities law around the token, whether it makes sense to just pay people in dollars, all of this stuff is just like super challenging. So this whole ecosystem, it's evolving. It's super challenging. And I think, you know, we're, we're kind of going through kind of like an altcoin liquidity crisis at the moment. (laughs) Um, which I think is, you know, also putting a lot of strain on validator businesses. I, you know, cosmically, you know, my the occlusions cash flow has dropped dramatically because of the fall in prices and the decrease in liquidity. So I think that is also a challenging thing. So everybody's just like trying to figure out how to make this all work. Yep, basically. You know, uh, along the lines of building the ecosystem, you gave a really interesting talk at MIT, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But I think one of the points you were trying to get across is this idea of product development cycles and traditional businesses are different than this business. Yeah. That's like my favorite talk I've ever given. Yeah, we'll definitely link to it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, There's a great slide in there where you use this analogy of this like rickety bridge and how you wouldn't iterate on that when you build, um, you know, large scale public infrastructure. Yeah. You don't build public infrastructure by, by like having this like rickety broken bridge and then like iteratively making it better until it's like the Golden Gate Bridge. Right. (laughs) Like that's not how any of this works. Right. So I get that for like layer one, but I guess how could some developers use some of those concepts from that talk when building their own apps on top of these systems? Well, I think that's, and if you kind of like float back to like what I think IBC is going to bring to the Cosmos ecosystem Mm -hmm. is... It's really hard right now to build anything in the Cosmos ecosystem that isn't a Golden Gate Bridge, that isn't like a massive piece of public infrastructure that 
10, many millions of dollars went into the construction. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to like spin up kind of like one-off prototypes and get, and like feel like you're doing anything. So that's the reality right now. I think that as people can build applications on top of Cosmos with IBC, there'll be a better story around getting simple things out there quickly. And I think to a certain extent, you're, you're like Ethereum and the whole DeFi space mm-hmm. to a certain extent has found like a good balance between this. Like nothing in the DeFi space is as decentralized or low risk or mature as we'd like it to be. Mm-hmm. But they are, you know, these kind of rickety bridges that do give us some sense of how this thing works. You know, like my, one of my most important messages about it was trying to define the minimum piece that you can release where feedback is meaningful. Okay. So the approach that we've taken with Cosmos and the message that we're trying, the biggest learning and the thing that like, you know, some projects are doing a good job of and other projects are not as doing a good job of is if you release too, too early, release an increment of work from which you can learn nothing. Like all you learn is like, oh, okay, this thing like ran into a brick wall. Yep. Like it failed catastrophically. That was the story. But like you kind of have to learn what is the minimum increment of a thing that you can release that will actually move the dial. And like from which people playing with it and using it may teach you something unexpected and what you didn't know. Right. The main thing I see most projects learning from like what they're doing right now, they're like kind of on the road to mainnet right now, is they're learning like we learned in Cosmos with our test nets, that your testing procedure is inadequate. Mm-hmm. And it took us oh, quite a few months of, of really thoughtful work to get to the point where we believed our testing program was adequate. Yep. Just because we're uh, kind of wrapping up on time here. Uh, this is something we've been asking a lot of guests because I think we get some interesting answers. So outside of crypto and blockchain, what are some interesting technologies or trends that you're optimistic about? I'm still fascinated and very interested and engaged with like this, like the continued evolution of the world of computer security outside of blockchain. Mm-hmm. I think blockchains are like a really interesting domain and all these things are super relevant in those spaces. A blockchain is kind of like the Mad Max, like final, yeah. like a Fury Road version of computer security. Right. I just continue to find like the interactions between nation states, companies like Apple and Google, the conflict between privacy and security or like privacy, security and surveillance that they all seem to be, that they all struggle with, like all of that stuff to be just super interesting. Great. So how else can uh, listeners get in touch and find out more about Cosmos? So cosmos.http colon slash cosmos.network on the web. Our Twitter is a great way. My personal Twitter is a great way to to follow it. So all of those things are, are great ways to sort of get introduced to the Cosmos ecosystem. We have a large Telegram community. Like all of those places are kind of good places to engage. Awesome. Hey everyone, you've got Vikram here again. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please drop us a rating on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, drop me a line at Vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M at Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R.com. Thanks.